Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about King Ludwig II of Bavaria. Uh, often remembered as the fairy tale king. This is a bloke who not only oversaw a huge transition in the power structure of the German-speaking world, who's a huge part of this, of course, but also created some of Bavaria's most enduring and significant cultural attractions. And there's one in particular we're going to talk about a lot today. Um, as, as, a, as a man, as, as just as a fella, he was extremely interesting, personally. He was shy and introverted. He was obsessed with the arts and culture to the point where he ignored other stuff that, you know, was traditionally in the realm of statecraft, things like the military or, you know, not being millions of marks in debt, boring stuff like that. He didn't, uh, he didn't, he didn't have a lot of time for, uh, you know, for financial, for military, for political affairs. He was much more interested in other stuff. Um, and uh, as a result, he is responsible for some of the most famous icons of, I mean, not just Bavaria, not just, you know, Southern Germany, but also the Romantic era. He patronised famous composers. He constructed incredible castles. Um, And in addition to securing a great part of Bavaria's cultural legacy, he also, as I say, he oversaw Bavaria's inclusion into the German Empire in the 1870s. Absolutely mystifying figure, King Ludwig II. Absolutely mystifying figure. A real weirdo, except actually, no, he was rich, so we don't call them weirdos when they're rich. We call them eccentric. So he was a real, he was a, he was a real eccentric. Um, and even today, we still there's still a lot a, a lot about him. We just don't know, in particular, the circumstances of his death are shrouded in mystery, as we'll as we'll have a chat about. But before we begin, of course, I just want to say thank you to alert listener Evelyn Nyer for suggesting Ludwig as a topic. Cheers, Evelyn. It was it was great to revisit this bloke, learn more about him. Uh, But let's not waste any time. Let's get to it here and have a chat about uh, Ludwig II. Here we go. So we're going all the way back, all the way back here to 1845, to the Kingdom of Bavaria in uh, what is today modern-day Germany. But back then, Bavaria was essentially an independent kingdom. Um, Today, it's a, a Bundesland. It's a state of the Federal Republic of Germany. But at the time of Ludwig's birth, Germany didn't exist. Germany as a, as a nation, as a country, didn't... Well, nation maybe... Uh, there was a, a national identity of German-speaking people, German culture, so, and so on and so forth. But there wasn't a state called... Um, there wasn't a state called Germany. There wasn't a, a kingdom, an empire, a republic, nothing. Um, in 1845... Instead, much of modern Germany was instead part of the German Confederation, which itself was a group of 39 different states that were all essentially autonomous, uh, even if they you know, all spoke the same language-ish um, and had strong cultural ties. They were effectively independent in a lot of ways. Um, and the, the German Confederation was, was the successor or the replacement for the Holy Roman Empire, which collapsed in 1806, of course, thanks to old mate Napoleon. Um, but the Kingdom of Bavaria, right? It is one of the many sovereign states within the Confederation, not to mention some of the most powerful ones. You know, there's things like Prussia, Austria, ones, ones you've heard of. They, they kind of ruled the roost. But Bavaria was up there. It was, it was one of the larger ones. It was one of the more powerful ones. And in 1845, young Ludwig, he's born in Munich, which is the Bavarian capital, of course. Uh, and he's the eldest son of King Maximilian II of Bavaria and his wife, Marie of Prussia. Now... As a young bloke, as a kid, in fact, he had a pretty mixed experience as a child. He didn't get on with his parents at all. Uh, In later life, he even referred to his mother as my predecessor's consort rather than, you know, mum, 
which is, I don't know, almost as bad as calling your mum your spawn point or something. I don't know what's going on. I mean, what's going on there, Ludwig, mate? What, what happened there for that, for that to be the case? Uh, he did, however, get on with his grandpa, uh, the former King Ludwig I, um, who had been deposed as part of the revolutions of 1848. But as I say, he didn't like his mum or dad very much. But despite this, he had the upbringing that you would probably expect in many ways of a young royal, um, especially one that was obviously you know next in line to the throne. He was mercilessly tutored and trained for leadership. He was constantly reminded of his status. Uh, he had his time managed by other people. Um, but uh, in contrast to this, as a senior royal, even as a child, his excesses were indulged. He always got his way. He, so he was this weird combination of like controlled and spoilt. And maybe this contributed to his weirdness as an adult. Who knows? But we will get to that in, uh, in due course. Much of his time during his childhood, during his younger years, was spent at Castle Hohenschwangau, which is nestled next to a lake at the foothills of the Alps. It's an absolutely beautiful part of the world. It's one of my favourite places to visit. Uh, it, it, this area around the town of Füssen, it would end up being very important in Ludwig's life, as you'll discover. And uh, it really is a, uh, it really is just an absolutely magnificent, a breathtakingly beautiful part of the world. The uh, the, the southern border of Germany along the Bavarian Alps. It's, uh, as I say, one of my favourite places on earth. And uh, it's not surprising that Ludwig had such a, a strong connection with an area that, again, just so breathtakingly beautiful. Anyway... He took the throne at a young age. He was just 18 years old when his dad died in 1864, and so he became Ludwig II, the King of Bavaria. Now, he was young, he was inexperienced, and he was altogether, I think it's fair to say, completely unprepared to be king. But, on the other, on the other hand, he was a very handsome chap, he was reasonably popular with his subjects, and after, the thro- after taking the throne... He didn't rock the boat. He kept in place all of his dad's ministers. He stuck to the same policy schedule. So as a result, his accession was pretty orderly, and he was a relatively well-liked monarch um, immediately following the, uh, the the time that he took the throne, and, and for some, you know, for for a good amount of time afterwards. So, not you know, not a particularly spectacular or, or glorious king who who uh, took to the throne and immediately made his presence felt, but uh, a, a little quieter, a little more, uh, a little uh, a little more reserved in his uh, approach to, uh, to to leadership. And, uh, you know, the, the, again, some of his priorities rather than statecraft were things like art and architecture and music, other cultural expressions like that. He was much more interested he, in, in these things than he was in leadership, you know, ruling his realm, statecraft, as I say. And ordinarily, this wouldn't have been a huge issue because, I mean, you know, we've talked about other king, I mean, never held the Prussian Frederick the Great back, for example. I mean, get across that, episode one, don't even worry about that. He was also a great patron lover of the arts. Except that Ludwig's love of, of art and culture and music, all the rest of it, went hand in hand with a pointed avoidance of many of the responsibilities and roles that he had as king. He hated big gatherings and festivals. He avoided them at all costs, banquets, balls, parades, ceremonies, whatever else. He would do everything that he could to avoid having to go to them. He's just a huge introvert. He was a huge introvert. He much preferred to live in essentially seclusion. He stayed away from Munich as much as he could. Um, instead, he spent time, you might be surprised to learn, in the Bavarian countryside. And oddly enough, this actually aided his popularity with the common folk. It, it, it resulted in not getting on very well with his government, but the common people bloody loved him because he didn't put on ears. He didn't, you know, he would often hang about and chat with workers and farmers when he was traveling around. People liked him because he was very down to earth and, uh, and much more accessible. You know, he wasn't, he didn't sort of uh, have his head buried a long way up his ass like so many other, so many other kings have. You know, he was, he was much more in touch, I suppose you could say, even as, as much as you can be when you are king, I suppose. But 
Even with his hands-off approach to politics, he couldn't ignore one of the biggest political issues of the time in this region. Of course, the unification of Germany. Now, I said that Germany didn't exist uh, at the time of Ludwig's birth, but it certainly existed not too long into his life. In the 1860s, the unification of Germany was brought about piece by piece, principally by the Kingdom of Prussia and its famous Iron Chancellor, Otto von Bismarck. Now, Bismarck, we'll have to do an episode on him one day. There's such a fascinating bloke. So much to get across in the life of Bismarck. Bismarck sought to unify German-speaking states, kingdoms, regions, whatever. He, he, wanted to, he wanted to unify the German-speaking world, essentially. And ultimately, he did this with enormous effectiveness. Prussia was one of the most powerful kingdoms in Europe by this point, you know, uh, not just within the German Confederation, but in Europe, it was a great power. And it slowly but surely expanded its power and its influence until it controlled much of what is today northern Germany. And this expansion uh, did not go over too well with some of Prussia's primary rivals, in particular the Austrian Empire, uh, another great power of Europe and and the primary, primary rival within the German Confederation and more broadly within Europe of the Prussian kingdom. Uh, ultimately, the the tension between these two uh, these two political rivals ratcheted up to the point where in 1866 they actually it actually led, it led to war. Um, and in 1866, with war declared between uh, between the Kingdom of Prussia and the Austrian Empire, Bavaria had to pick a side. Um, during this Austro-Prussian War, as it's known, Ludwig decided to back Austria, and this proved to be a bad move as Bismarck absolutely wiped the floor with the Austrians and their allies, dissolved the, the German Confederation, and forced the Kingdom of Bavaria to join what would later, in 1871, become the German Empire, the precursor to modern Germany. Austria was shut out completely. This led to the formation of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, while the Kingdom of Bavaria now effectively was a client state of Prussia, which became the overwhelmingly dominant force within the internal workings of the German Empire. Technically, it was the German Empire, but really it was the Kingdom of Prussia. That, they, they were the de facto power uh, within, within, as I say, the, the internal workings uh, of the empire. They're more or less an extension of the power of Prussia there. However, however, Unlike many of the other areas brought under Imperial Germany and therefore the Kingdom of Prussia's control, Bavaria secured itself a wealth of exceptions to, to ordinary imperial rule. Bavaria gained a privileged status as an imperial client. They kept and commanded their own armies. They maintained a strong level of, of political, cultural, diplomatic independence. Even within the empire, they had their own diplomats. Um, so even as the German Empire was was proclaimed in early early 1871, Bavaria remained not independent necessarily, but definitely further removed from Prussian dominance. And the way this came about was with Bismarck essentially buying Ludwig off. He offered Ludwig a, a significant financial incentive uh, in exchange for Ludwig's endorsement of Kaiser Wilhelm I. So Wilhelm was the, the, the king of Prussia who then became the empire, the emperor, the Kaiser of Germany, um, supposedly at Ludwig's suggestion, although it was a suggestion that had been bought and paid for by Bismarck. A very, a very clever move from Bismarck there as it, as it actually legitimized Wilhelm further as, a, uh, as an emperor, having one of his co-monarchs uh, suggest, suggest uh, this, this being, you know, what ultimately happened with, uh, with leading the, the empire. So it worked very well uh, in terms of setting up the, the German Empire, but it did not mean that Ludwig was too happy about it. On the contrary, he pointedly refused to attend Wilhelm's crowning as emperor, although then again, 
maybe that was just because he you know didn't like big crowds who knows but you might look at this situation and be like well that's not much of a story i mean you know there's no blood and guts and no horrible murder i mean no- nothing nothing really happened here but that in and of itself i think is quite a story ludwig ii as a king of an, of an independent bavaria ultimately led his country into becoming a client state of the once rival kingdom turned empire of prussia known as the german empire and while tens of thousands of lives were lost during the austro-prussian war in 1866 only 350 of them were bavarian ludwig could have taken a different path a bloodier path a path that would have risked the ruin of his kingdom entirely but instead under his rule bavaria lost its independence yes but it secured itself a privileged position within the german empire now Obviously, this is all pie-in-the-sky speculation, but I think this is worth thinking about. How many lives would have been lost if the conflict had been drawn out, if Ludwig had been prouder, fiercer, more military-minded, more bloodthirsty? I mean, often in history, we examine events and decisions of great importance, battles, campaigns, and power struggles, that generally cost the lives of countless thousands. And perhaps I'm exaggerating the importance of the way this specific part of history played out, but you know, just as we talk about when people like Caesar cross the Rubicon, I think it's worth discussing or at least noticing when people don't. Ludwig transitioned his independent kingdom into being part of a larger empire, and he did so without excessive bloodshed, without huge losses, and gained special privileges for his realm to boot. And, you know, very little in the way of glory in this story, sure, but I feel like it's difficult to call it bad leadership when it's framed like that. It certainly is a very interesting counterpoint to many of the tales of a vicious conquest that we tell on this uh, on this podcast here here is a kingdom willingly subjugating itself within you know willingly being subsumed by a part of an empire perhaps for the large benefit the, the, the greater benefit of its citizens or because you know Bavaria knew it didn't have a leg to stand on when facing up against the Prussians I mean there's a lot of stuff to do, to unpack there but I find it very interesting that Ludwig as a king didn't make that final stand and didn't condemn countless thousands of his people to death to fight for you know to to, to fight for Bavarian independence. He he ultimately bent the knee and I don't know. I don't think that's something that we necessarily need to look down on. Anyway, from eighteen seventy one onwards, Bavaria now part of the German Empire, Ludwig pulled back even further from politics than ever before. Maybe that was his objective the entire time. He's like, great, if we become an empire, I don't have to worry about this anymore. I can worry about my body art, my music, my castles. And he engrossed himself in his creative endeavours, in music, in theatre, and of course, in architecture, his most famous legacy, architecture. And we'll talk about the other two first. Let's talk about music and theatre first, then we'll get to the castles. Um, but unfortunately, Ludwig was a patron of a musician and a composer whose legacy certainly has not aged well as time has passed. He was a great lover of music, Ludwig was, but unfortunately he did, from a broader historical perspective, he did back the wrong horse when it came to, uh, no, well, certainly not the musical output, but just the bloke himself, because... You've heard of Richard Wagner, undoubtedly. Very famous composer, most famous for his operas. Uh, he, he will have wrote, You will have heard the pieces he's wrote, stuff like Ride of the Valkyries. You've, you've heard this sort of thing. However, along with his contributions to the world of classical music, he also made some contributions to the world of politics that um, have, well, to put it mildly, very much put him on the wrong side of history. Uh, Wagner was a rusted-on anti-Semite, and unfortunately his work was heavily appropriated by Nazi Germany under Hitler, uh, who was a great fan. Of, of Wagner. And uh, Wagner also wrote extensively about the superior and inferior races, in his words. Uh, and he filled his work with anti Semitic tropes and stereotypes and generally held a lot of extremely questionable views that, uh, as I say, they have not aged well. However, irrespective of all of this, Ludwig could not get enough of Wagner. He loved Wagner, he loved his work. 
Um, and he patronized the composer from his coronation onwards, all the way through the 1860s into the 1870s, um, financing projects and compositions and even opera houses for him. Ludwig lavished praise on Wagner. And Wagner, I think this is fair to say, he took the young king for all he was worth. He feigned admiration for, for Ludwig as well, so as to take advantage of his patronage as much as possible. Right through the 1870s, Wagner was able to rely on Ludwig for very generous financial support. And Wagner, who was notoriously bad with money, did not waste the opportunity to fleece the king. Um, Ludwig kept Wagner afloat year after year after year. Without him, Wagner's career would have been in ruins, thanks not only to the money that he was given, but also the prestige and the fame that came from being, you know, the king's favourite, promoted, plugged by the, the King of Bavaria, having his shows put on at the Royal Theatres and Opera House, whatever else like that. And Wagner, I'm sorry to say, paid back Ludwig's generosity rather poorly, because even when he was enjoying the patronage of, of, of the king, he misbehaved, he slept around, he caused scandals, he made a real turkey of himself, he was a, pol- a polemicist, he loved to piss people off. And eventually, as a result of all of this, Ludwig was forced to boot him out of Munich altogether. He really didn't gel that well with the conservative society of, of, of 19th century Munich. Um, but after kicking him out of Munich, he then funded, not only funded him a new opera house for him to premiere his works in, but also provided a villa for him for him to live in in Switzerland. I mean, if you're a fan of Wagner's music, and I hope you're not a fan of the bloke himself at the very least, know that Wagner essentially owes his entire career, I think it's fair to say, to King Ludwig II and his almost naive generosity when it came to this composer. Anyway, aside from Wagner, Ludwig was also into the arts in a big way, um, happy to pour money into creative projects of all kinds. In particular, he sought to attract high-profile performers to Munich to put on shows, music, opera, theatre, plays, all sorts. He funded German translations of classic works, and he patronised performances of everything from Mozart to Shakespeare. He really did attempt to culturally enrich his capital city and his kingdom more broadly within uh, the German Empire. But we've already mentioned, right, that he didn't like being out and about in, loud, in, in large crowds. So, I mean, he's, it's, it's all very well for him to, you know, get the, the finest acting troops in the world to come and put on bloody Hamlet for him in the, in, in the Royal Theatre in, uh, in Munich, but he's not going to want to go because it's going to be packed to the rafters with all these people bloody watching, is it? Isn't it? So, the king solved this problem by paying out the arse, right, for private performances, for him alone or maybe with one other guest, He did this not just with soloists, but with operas, plays, ballets. He would sit there alone in the middle of a huge theatre and watch these performances put on by himself, right? This is how much he hated crowds. But it wasn't just because he hated crowds. Interesting, he he actually discussed this with people at the time. It wasn't just his dislike of crowds that made him do this. It was also his dislike of being, as he put it, almost part of the performance, right? People attending the theatre while he was there would invariably spend time watching and commenting on him and his reactions to the performance as well. So it, he almost became part of the performative element of the of the theatre itself. And he hated this. He hated this. And and so staged at great, great personal expense, he staged these private performances for himself. And given his overall love of art and culture and romance in general, you might think it strange when I tell you he never married and he never had any children. This was a bloke who was caught up in the, in the mythology of the Middle Ages, of, of, of stories of valour and, and chivalry and knights and princess and all the rest of it. He loved all that sort of stuff. He loved these sweeping, great, big, romantic ideals. But he never got married and he never had any kids. He had been engaged in 1867. He was, he was engaged to a, a Bavarian Dutch, duchess who was 
also his cousin, but, you know, that's just how they did it. Um, But he kept postponing the marriage and eventually broke the engagement altogether uh, later that year. He also, on top of this, Never had any mistresses to speak of, or none that we know about it, at least. And and you might already sort of be piecing together uh, the next bit of information I'm going to give you about this bloke. Ludwig was, it is strongly suspected, he was a homosexual. Um, something that, of course, was heavily frowned upon in the conservative Catholic Bavaria of the 19th century. Broadly speaking, throughout most of the world at this point, you know, it wasn't something that people were too keen on. And certainly, uh, specifically in Bavaria, it really, really would have caused a huge scandal. I mean, Bavaria even today is still pretty conservative and pretty Catholic in fairness. But back then, no chance, no chance at all. It would have caused irreparable scandal to Ludwig if he were outed as a homosexual king. Would have, you know, it, it would have ultimately resulted in the, in, in the, the you know, the, the utter ruin of his monarchy. And so as a result, he lived a life of deep secrecy. There are many men who are suspected to have been partners of his, but he played a very close hand indeed at the best of times. And so we're never really going to be sure. But in his personal letters and diaries, he discusses his uh, his homosexual desires, but publicly he did an exceptional job of keeping it all secret. But still, the poor bloke, honestly, the poor bloke, I mean, much like Frederick the Great and so many others throughout history, he was denied the opportunity to live his best life by the circumstance of history. It really is a great shame. Anyway, more than anything else, of course, more than anything else, more than the music and the theatre and everything else, he is known, Ludwig is remembered, for the castles that he built. One in particular remaining to this day an incredibly famous fairy tale palace in the Bavarian Alps, Neuschwanstein Castle. There are others. There was Linderhof, a smaller replica of uh, the Palace of Versailles called uh, Herrenchimsey, which was built on an island in a lake. Um, he also put a lot of money into expanding the, the residence palace in Munich. But all of these projects, right, all of these projects, they were lavish. They spared no expense, but none more so than Neuschwanstein Castle, the most famous and the most incredible of all of Ludwig's projects. The king spent so much of his time and so much of his attention overseeing the construction of Neuschwanstein. Uh, he personally approved even the smallest details. There are, um, there are notes that the king wrote about you know, the, the way that the, the frescoes and the paintings should be put together on, on the size of the, uh, uh, of the stones that the masons were using to, uh, to, to build the castle. He was, he was micromanaging it down to the finest detail uh, because he was determined. The reason he built this castle, he was determined to bolster the cultural legacy of Bavaria by building a wondrous, a magnificent castle. And after spending much of his time in, much of his childhood in Hohenschwangau, he knew just where he'd put it, up in the foothills near the village that surrounded his childhood home, overlooking the lakes, the hills and the mountains, the Bavarian Alps. Ludwig conceived of a grand fairy tale palace perched on a steep foothill, this romantic reinterpretation of a medieval mythology, right? And he commissioned these plans in 1868 and the foundation stones were first placed in 1869 and construction continued right through to the 1880s. He spared no expense. The initial estimates of the castle's uh, costs were quickly and repeatedly revised, and the project began to cost just enormous, vast sums of money. However, Ludwig, he paid it. He paid them, and further, he didn't rely on the public purse to fund his castle. He used his own money. He was very wealthy, to begin with at least. He was very wealthy indeed, and he used his own money to fund this building project until he ran out of money, and then started borrowing from 
more or less anyone he could think of, from friends, from family, from other European royals. He never used uh, any you know significant amount of uh, of public money in funding uh, in funding his castle, which is again I think quite admirable. Ludwig keeping himself out of the day to day governance of his of his realm right uh, meant that he focused primarily, overwhelmingly, really, on these building these cultural projects. And despite, you know, despite the cost involved to him personally, you'd think that his ministers would have actually been fine with this, right? You'd think, oh, great, the king's off bloody building his castle. We can get on with the governance of the realm. But no, they actually wanted a strong and an active king, not this weird recluse who was obsessed with his mountaintop, this beautiful mountaintop castle that he was building. So throughout the 1870s and into the 1880s, the, the government and Ludwig uh, d- developed a, a, a relationship that was increasingly rancorous as time went on. They really didn't get on. And again, it, it sort of it surprised me to learn this because I would have thought that you know, a hands-off king would be a great thing for a, cab- a, a, a you know, cabinet full of ministers who wanted to run the country in their own way. But no, they, they really didn't like the fact that, that Ludwig was so taken up by his building projects down in the south of the, you know, along the, along the, the, the Alps that, that made the border there. His government urged him to, to save rather than spend and, and to attempt to repair his finances as he, as he grew further and further into debt. Um, again, personal debt. He used very little public money to fund these projects. But um, this castle consumed the intention, the, the, the attention and the finances of, of the king. In 1844, uh, he began to spend time in the, the partially completed Neuschwanstein Castle, uh, which was, it was derided by many at the time as being kitsch and tacky and, well, See how those, uh, you know, <laughs> those estimations of the castle uh, aged as we uh, as we uh, continue the episode. But um, at this time, when he, you know, he was able to move into the the partially completed castle, he was also in monumental debt. The castle's cost ran into millions and millions of marks, tens of millions of dollars in today's terms. And Ludwig had borrowed money from everyone who would lend it to him, and was <laughs> was running out of options and. Uh, when his creditors came knocking, you know, hoping to discuss perhaps, you know, him paying them back, he threatened his own suicide if they called in their debts. And so he was able to continue funding the project despite opposition from many different quarters, not the least of which, again, as I say, was his government, who was, again, urging him to, uh, to try to save rather than spend. And all of this came to a head in 1866, when he finally, at long, long last, finally attempted to borrow money of his own government. He did not get on with his ministers, as I say. He thought about dismissing them all and replacing them when he knew that he was going to be fighting a steep uphill battle in order to get through this latest, uh, you know, this latest round of financing. But he was beaten to the punch because when his cabinet found out what the king was considering here, they sought to have him deposed. Ludwig's ministers cast around for a way to oust him from the throne, and they settled on framing the king's weirdness as, unfortunately, mental illness, so as to remove him constitutionally. A bloke named Maximilian Count von Holstein uh, put together a medical report gathering testimony from the king's staff and servants. He bribed and intimidated these people into giving him the testimony they wanted, testimony that made the king seem mentally ill instead of, you know, just being a bit of a weirdo. Things like his introversion, his shyness, his bad table manners, his determination to avoid being involved in governing the realm, his poor treatment of some of the servants. It's strongly su- suspected here that the report uh, the report put together on the king's mental health was at the very best highly sensationalised, very you know, o- overwhelmingly exaggerated. 
uh, with much of the testimony, much of the accusations having been, uh, I guess, I guess today we'd ca- we'd say sexed up. But nonetheless, the report was presented to four psychiatrists, three of whom had never met Ludwig, and another who had met the la- uh, last met the king twelve years ago. And these four doctors duly signed the paperwork that confirmed that Ludwig was mentally unfit to rule. And just like that, the king was condemned to lose his throne. The declaration was supported by the fact that Ludwig's younger brother Otto did suffer from mental illness, and so the doctors made the case that it was hereditary. And so it was, you know, with this, uh, with this medical report in hand, that it was, so it was that at four o'clock in the morning on the 10th of June in 1866, a government detachment was sent to Neuschwanstein Castle, which was still under construction at this point, and it still wasn't finished, to inform the king of this decision and to take him into custody. And already, the ministers had, had arranged a replacement for the king once he was to be deposed. Ludwig's uncle, Prince Leutpold, uh, would take power and act as a regent. But King Ludwig wasn't going to be taken so easily. He put up a terrific fight. He ordered local police to defend him in his castle. A castle that wasn't built for military defence. It was built for beauty. But he did hole up in it with the, with the loyal local police, actually sending away this government detachment at gunpoint. And then, once they'd done that, a 47-year-old baroness, who was a big fan of the king, attacked them with an umbrella. So this government, uh, this government, so these messengers sent by the government were, were not very, uh, not received in a very friendly manner by the king down there in uh, in Neuschwanstein. But it was no good because Prince Leopold was declared regent all the same, even without uh, Ludwig himself being secured. Uh, Leopold was was declared regent later that day, that very day, same day. And after holding up in Neuschwanstein Castle for two more days after this, Ludwig eventually was taken into custody by a second government attachment before he could follow through on the plans he was making to escape. And here, I'm sorry to say, is where the story takes a turn for the tragic. Because the deposed king, he was taken away from Neuschwanstein, which he never lived to see complete. He was taken away to Berg Castle, which is south of Munich, and this is where he was going to be treated. But the very next day, on the 13th of June, Ludwig, he went for a walk through the parkland that surrounded the castle with one of the doctors that had signed the medical report. They left at about 6pm. They headed to the shores of the, of the nearby Lake Starnberg, and neither were ever seen alive again. When the king and the doctor didn't return later that evening, search parties were sent out to find them. A storm had blown up and, and, the, uh, and the parties were, were lashed with heavy rain as they made their way towards the lake. But it was there in the shadows of Lake Starnberg at half past 10 at night on the 13th of June, 1866, that the body of King Ludwig II was found. Just three days after his deposition as king, he was dead. His body was accompanied also by the corpse of the doctor that had accompanied him. And the doctor's body showed signs of, of strangulation as well as blows, uh, evidence of blows to the, to the head and the neck. Ludwig, on the other hand, was wearing a watch that had stopped at six minutes to seven, and according to the autopsy, there were no signs of injury or any wound whatsoever, and he was declared to have committed suicide by drowning. But no water was found in his lungs. The water was only waist deep, and Ludwig was a very strong swimmer. This is most mysterious, as indeed were the words last said by the strangled doctor before the two of them left. He said, Es darf kein Pfleger mitgehen, or in English, no attendant may accompany us. Now this leaves some room for ambiguity. 
Were the attendants not supposed to come with them at all? Were the attendants supposed to come and keep a distance? This is a question we don't know the answer to. Theories even today contend that the king was murdered, perhaps for the sake of political convenience, and more than one person associated with the king at the time claimed that Ludwig had been shot and dumped in the lake. And the autopsy perhaps was used to cover up the fact that he had been murdered. Alternatively, it is suggested that he could have attempted a vain escape attempt and suffered a heart attack thanks to the cold water of the lake. It's all very fishy, and I hate to do it to you, but it is probably a mystery that we will never know the answer to. A royal funeral was held for Ludwig, and while his brother Otto technically became the king, Otto never ruled in his own right. He was he had been declared unfit to rule by the same doctor that had died in the lake with Ludwig years and years ago before this. And as a result, Luitpold, the prince, he remained regent, he remained effectively in charge of Bavaria, and he occupied the position until his death in 1912, when his son, who was also called Ludwig, overtook the position of regent, but deposed Otto altogether the next year in 1913, becoming Ludwig III, the last king of Bavaria, as of course the monarchy was abolished altogether with the end of the First World War in 1918. But one of the greatest legacies of the Kingdom of Bavaria to this day is, of course, Neuschwanstein Castle. And if you haven't already realised this based on how I've been talking about the place, I bloody love it. I've been there numerous times. It is just as incredible as it looks in the pictures. It is an amazing place to visit at any time of the year. A magnificent, inspiring building that really does capture the soaring romantic mythology of fairy tale stories. Visiting the castle introduced me to my love of hiking. It firmly entrenched Bavaria as my number one holiday destination. I love the place, mate. And today, well, I mean, not exactly today with, you know, the pandemic and whatnot, but you understand what I mean. Neuschwanstein Castle today, it brings in millions of tourists and tens of millions of euro every single year. And this is quite funny for a number of reasons. Firstly, Ludwig fully intended to build Neuschwanstein as a private residence only. He never intended to open the palace to the public. It was intended to, to be for his use as a, as a, as a recluse, you know, as, as, this, as this unbelievably shy monarch. It was designed for him to just, you know, use it as, as, a, as a personal refuge. But now, obviously, tourists from all over the world converge to marvel at it. And secondly, it makes a lot of money. A lot of money from these tourists. A, a decade's worth of visitors would be more than enough to pay the, the lifetime of debts that Ludwig incurred while building it. He may never have lived to see his cultural masterpiece completed, but Ludwig II of Bavaria, weirdo that he was, created a powerful, lasting cultural legacy for Bavaria and an enduring symbol of romanticism. For all of his faults and his idiosyncrasies, Ludwig wrote his story into the history books with a magnificent legacy of culture and castles, a story that was so tragically and very mysteriously cut short. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of King Ludwig II of Bavaria, the fairy tale king. And once again, I want to thank Evelyn for sending in this story. I mean, I visited Neuschwanstein Castle many, many times. I love the place. I'd done a little bit of reading about Ludwig before, but uh, it was great to uh, to go a little deeper on the bloke and, and, and discover what he was all about. So I hope you enjoyed the story too. And, and thanks once again to, uh, thanks once again to Evelyn for, uh, for sending it as a, in as a suggestion. If you've got a suggestion, please send it in by all means. Go to halfhousehistory.net. There's a contact form there you can use to get in touch with me. I do apologise if I don't resp- respond to your email. They're, they're, 
a little too numerous for me to get back to everyone, but I do read every single one very gratefully. So thank you to all of you who are sending in topic suggestions and ideas. And uh, thank you to those of you, of course, who are. A special thank you to all of you supporting me on Patreon, patreon.com slash half history. If you want to get across it over there, you can get access to bonus content, uh, uncut episodes, show notes, and early access, all that sort of stuff. They're available for you. Uh, also the opportunity to become a co-executive producer of the show, should you, uh, should you so fancy. Um, and on top of that, thank you to just people who are, you know, helping to spread the good word of, uh, of Half-Life History. Thank you so much for uh, for helping to, to, to boost those numbers. Got to get those numbers up, as ever. I say the same thing every week. Going to leave you the question as ever posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Wonderwill. Um, we talked about King Ludwig II. We also mentioned the King Ludwig I, his grandfather, and then later on King Ludwig III that came after him. And this one sort of, you know, it, it's related to the to the you know the way that we number these kings. Wonderwill asks, "What was King Louis's secret to living so many times?" <laughs> <laughs>